0: This is the Roaring Elephant podcast for the 20th of March, 2018, a podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anyone working with or investigating big data and advanced analytics. My name is Dave, and here is my big node, small node co-host,
1: Yon. Are you calling me fat? Uh, <laughs> well-rounded. all rounded Thank you very much. Oh, well, I'm in good company, I guess. How are you doing? This is true. I'm doing very well, thanks. Yourself? Yeah, fine. I mean, it's always fun to do a podcast on a Friday evening. Absolutely. And it's a news episode. It is, so and I believe <laughs> we have some news. Uh, well, we don't. We just talk about the news. Some
0: Other people make That's the news. We don't make it right. True. Well, let's let's do that then. Let's talk about some news. Yeah, you go first. Um, all right. So I found an article um, that is on InsideBigData.com. And it's introducing the topic, and it's kind of interesting because we talked about some node sizing conversations uh, not too long ago. Mm-hmm. And this is uh, does it make sense to do big data with small nodes? Um, you know there's been a uh, a sort of a feeling in the big data world of you know many small nodes is more efficient than a smaller number of large nodes. I still think that's broadly correct but i think you do need to at some point decide how small is small and how large mm-hmm. is large um this article goes through um just one particular workload in this particular case they're looking at uh, a no uh database called ScalaDB db or skylar db um or possibly cycler db i don't know i don't know how it's pronounced should have done looks into that <laughs> never mind um but they're essentially taking a look at a bunch of different uh, instance types on AWS mm-hmm. uh, and spinning up uh, their workload um, across uh, each of those different instance types. and actually it, I think coming up with some some sort of reasonably interesting um, conclusions um, they they basically sort of f- come to the conclusion that it doesn't really matter whether you use lots of smaller nodes or a smaller number of large nodes. Um, It does, however, you know, if you are going to look at this, it does mean that you need to make sure that a couple of things are taken care of. So, you know, does your uh, workload-slash-database-slash-application really scale linearly with the amount of resources per machine and the number of machines. You know, If it doesn't, if there's some sort of overhead that gets continually worse, then you won't see the same sort of level um, that they they seem to show here. Um, but essentially, the results that they come to from this particular set of testing is it doesn't really matter. You can either use uh, a bunch of... I mean, they go as, as small as um uh four CPUs and uh 30 gigs of RAM up to 64 CPUs and 488 gigs of RAM um so they do do sort of quite a uh quite a sizable differential in terms of the uh in terms of the the machine sizes that they that they verify
1: yes but uh, <laughs> I'm, j- I'm only reading the article now because we usually don't yeah. share these things beforehand. So that's why I'm being quiet while Dale is just ra- Dave is just rambling on when so yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm reading the stuff. Now, if I read this correctly, and I'm assuming you read it in more detail beforehand, mm-hmm. this is very much a ingest and output test where they... Read the data from the storage layer into the database engine and compact it, which means it's a lot of data I.O. measurements here. Mm-hmm. Now, yep. I can agree that, of course, if the compaction, CPU cycles will get involved because it's a computation thing, but CPUs are measures of magnitude faster than any kind of I.O. So your bottleneck yep. is going to be I.O. Now, if I'm correct in that, and do contradict me if I'm not. Since they're working on a cloud environment, and I'm pretty sure this is valid for Google, Amazon, and Azure or OpenStack or whatever you're using, storage is typically not in the, uh, the, the 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 machine, the VM machine itself. It's usually Correct, yeah. network uh, layer, uh, remoted somewhere. That means that you will be measuring, if anything, network latencies. And the number mm-hmm. of CPU counts isn't going to matter that much because if you have 64 CPUs, that will have for the same uh, one gig shared uh, network pipe. Uh, that doesn't matter if you're doing 32 or 64. And that also means that if you double the size of data, you will probably double the time it takes to load it in because that's just your network pipe. The thing I am surprised by, though, is that typically on a, um, a cloud your network bandwidth is throttled compared or depending on the size of your vm the theory behind it is that if those public cloud guys have a chassis somewhere if you have Mm -hmm. 10 small vms running there well each VM has to have a kind of guaranteed bandwidth so they have to cut up the bandwidth possible into 10 pieces if you have a big vm with 64 64 v V cpus you probably have the whole chassis for yourself so you're less throttled there yeah That would actually mean that I would expect a smaller VM size to be a lot slower than a bigger VM size. That, of course, is also, and that's what they're trying to talk about here, I think, is that the smaller VMs have more of a cut-up packaging, so you have a bit more more overhead for all the orchestration behind it, and apparently those kind of balance out. So, I mean, it's nice to have these kind of uh, comparisons, Uh, done. It's always interesting to read these things, but I'm a bit yeah, sad that, in my opinion, they pretty much were measuring network latencies here and or throughput here, and not really something more interesting like CPU.
0: Well, the problem is, of course, it's difficult to it's, it's difficult to do that in any real measurable sense. That in the cloud, definitely.
1: Yeah, because you have no control um, of the
0: infrastructure, right? Exactly. Exactly. It's it's all opaque to you. You 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 have the resources that you're provided, and you have to make do with what you've got. The the kind of curious thing that came out towards the end of their testing, and I I probably need to look into more depth because I'm not a hundred percent certain that what I'm saying is correct. But what they seem to hint towards is. Um, they basically destroy an individual node in the cluster yeah. Yeah. and measure the time to rebuild. rebuild that node. And obviously, if you've got a larger number of smaller nodes, um, I would have expected, and the traditionalist in me would have expected smaller nodes to rebuild faster and larger nodes
1: to take mm-hmm. longer. But, but again, actually, if smaller nodes are throttled on the network.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: I guess they
0: are, trust me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, uh, but I'm surprised that it's it's so um it's so even. I mean the smaller nodes take they do take slightly less time but mm-hmm. it it's not quite a rounding error but it's close to that. Whereas the as soon as you go past that smallest node size which is the i3x large which isn't um, all that small to be honest. But uh, it's, no, it, <laughs> it's 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 small in a um it's small in a big data sense though. Yeah um people are often using you know very very large node sizes for uh, for instance, in, in the big data world but it it's um it's considerably um it, sorry the the delta is considerably less for all of the rest of the node sizes i i was just i was just surprised at that. that that i mean you could be right it could well just be that it's due to the uh The throttling nature of the bit. uh, Because the throttling is kind of an
1: exponential curve. I mean, if you go to, if the difference between the two largest instances is a lot smaller than between the smallest and the second with smallest. Because that's really the smallest VMs are basically, nobody expects big performance there. You just want to have a cheap something running fast enough, let's say. Yeah, also, yeah, yeah. this isn't uh, HDFS. This is uh, a uh, yeah that, that database. So no SQL database of some sort. So time, yeah. we also don't really know how they do their rebuilding, right? Because if you're doing an HDFS yeah. and you have a replication factor of three, then you have two other nodes that can feed the one node, which means that you will have an un- unbalanced network traffic. Your ingest and exgest will be different. Exgest, <laughs> new word invented there. <laughs> um, while this, I'm not sure if this is just a one to one duplication or something like that. And again, since it's a public cloud, two disks that you attach, you have never there will also be a difference in a difference in latency in in where that disk is located in the data center, because yeah, you you kinda have the mercy of how the public cloud provider is doing its best to give you what you want within the yeah, constraints that they have, of course.
0: Or or at least to give you what you paid for, not necessarily what you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's assume
1: that what you want is what you pay for. <laughs> let's assume that people are That's realistic. a big <laughs> assumption. I know. It's the common sense thing again, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a nice article, but I got a bit of reservations there. I think for me, yeah. the biggest takeaway here is that uh, don't trust headlines. Yeah. And do read and... They pay attention read, to what you're reading.
0: Yeah, read the detail, read read the axis, and actually read everything about what's in the article before you come to a conclusion, oh, that's fine, it just means I just need four huge machines and everything Everything will be great.
1: Yeah, exactly. uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah I mean, and it, it's difficult, because you have we're you, being bombarded with articles and blogs and releases and news, press releases, whatever, every day it's hard to be to take the to be able to take the time to just really read everything basically myself i'm guilty of this too i very often just skim through skip through the, the headlines and just go through it a bit and yeah before you know it you're uh, repeating things that aren't necessarily as true as you might think they were indeed
0: okay so why don't you give us some recommendations
1: Yes, Uh, I'm keeping on my little uh, trip in uh, machine learning stuff. (laughs) This is a blog from uh, Cloudera, actually. Mm -hmm. And uh, the title is kind of nonsensical, to be honest, because production recommendation systems with Cloudera, well, it's uh, more generic than just Cloudera, to be honest, anything we can do with Hadoop. But the the key word is production. Mm -hmm. And this is something we've talked about before, I think, that where it's... Well, I'm not going to say easy, but when people talk about machine learning, they're always talking about the data scientist making the model, tuning the model, iterating the model, and the model is finished, and then it just magically goes to production, and everything is happy ever after, right? No, it's not. biggest problem usually is getting that thing in production, uh, which basically means how do I make this in a flow that can retrain the model when it's needed, and when it's retraining needed, well, as often as possible, basically. And this is actually the, one of the first blocks that actually go down on the infrastructural layer you kind of need for production. And they're kind of going from the, the the idea where you should have that in place first, and then whatever model you make, you can just plug it in there. Now, the first third of the article is more about what's recommendation system, why would you need it for, publicity for Clodera Cloder itself, that's great. And then they mentioned something called the Oryx project, which is an open source mm-hmm. thing on GitHub, which basically puts down a... Oh. I would say example architecture for a, uh, they call the lambda architecture. I'm not really seeing that much lambda here, but still, it has hot and cold parts. so I guess it uh, qualifies. Uh, they're using Apache Tomcat, Kafka, Spark, HDFS, and uh, the Spark, of course, uh, the machine learning libraries from Spark. And they actually give you a quite useful way of looking at it. And the, f- the, the important thing is that if you look at the little uh, image there and if you don't look at the, yes, if you look at the first image there where they actually show you the architecture of that Oryx uh, thing, they have a block called off-line, tra- offline training and a block called online training. And that's nice because that's the, the Lambda thing in here. Mm -hmm. where in a recommendation engine, you wouldn't think you need online training. And with online training, what they mean is training very quickly the moment you get new data in, immediately retrain your model. Typically, that's not very feasible because uh, a lot of machine learning models are built to train slow and score fast, which means that, well, I've got all the time in the world to do batch training of a model. As long as when I need results, if I need a data point scored, then that goes very fast. Because typically, when you're training it, Nobody's waiting for it, but if you're scoring Mm -hmm. it, that means somebody's on your website and wants to have a page reload. (laughs) And that has to be in milliseconds, nanoseconds, if possible. Now, online training... For a recommendation, then, you should say, oh, why do I need it? Uh, I've got my model trained. I've got the data for my users. Like, I have just recommendations. I pre-built that. And when my user comes back to my site, I will give him what I recalculated last night. And considering that those recommendations are based on, let's say, weeks or months of data that I've got from this uh, person, the fact that he makes a certain choice today will not skew the results that much, to be honest. And, yeah, you, you could say that's true. But there's there's an edge case, there's a borderline edge case, which is the new user, the first time a person comes and visits your site. Typically what people do then is just give generic recommendation. Basically, if you're doing the movie business, just look at the most popular movies of today and just give those as recommendation, which is of course great if your person is a generic person, (laughs) which I hope for the person (laughs) is not the case. (laughs) But it would be nice, of course, that you would do a better way. And we actually have already talked about a little bit about this when we talked about the Spotify article on uh, the My Listing, where they did a kind of an ensemble uh, prediction. But they also use things like social media to have that first recommendation a lot more valuable. In this article, they're talking about uh, ALS training, alternating least squares, a kind of collaborative uh, uh, recommendation engine. And alternating least squares actually has a way of doing a recursive update of your model, which isn't as good as a real training session, but it it does allow you to quickly push in a little bit of new data. It's a bit of a retraining the model itself. And we're not talking about deep learning here. So it's nothing to do with reinforced learning. But by having that, you're able to do this in the online training section, which can go in the hot part, in the fast part, and still have a fast scoring after that. And you can still have the uh, batch training as well. So basically, long story short, too late, I know. If you go through the article, basically, they give you a nice layout of what you can look at, how you have to look at these things uh, and why it's important and why it's different. And if you're into this space and this is not a recommendation, this could just as well be a prediction or a classification uh, problem doesn't really matter that much. It's a nice read. It's quite, uh, again, if you don't read too much of the first part, there's no marketing in here at all, I'd say. Um, it's based on Tomcat, which is pretty much standard. Uh, Kafka, well, if you like NiFi like we do, you can, of course, replace that. But basically, it's just a, a event bus in, in between. There's not much uh, intelligence in there, and all the heavy lifting is done by Spark and Spark Streaming. I guess you could uh, replace Spark yeah. with Storm if you wanted to.
0: And it, it does even give, right towards the end, it does give some sort of early examples of uh, deploying deep learning models as well. It talks about... Uh, Yep. TensorFlow being uh, involved in a very similar looking architecture.
1: Yeah, you just put Keras on top of there, which is an abstraction layer, which is uh, an easy way to work with if you just want to, if you don't want to box yourself into being dependent on TensorFlow. Mm-hmm. And that's actually also where they talk about the ensemble approach where you can actually augment your uh, ALS model with a deep learning model. And actually, now you mentioned it, when I was looking for articles for this episode, it kind of struck me how the Environment is kind of shifting from machine learning into deep learning for these kind of predictions and recommendation things. Mm -hmm. I mean, six months ago, you had machine learning, you had deep learning, two completely different things. And uh, it might might just have been coincidence, I I don't know, but uh, when I was looking, I found a couple of people just talking about doing deep learning, recommendation engines and things like that. Personally, I don't think you're there yet. Because if you want to do machine machine learning, if you do a collaborative filtering. Well, you need a couple of hundred thousand rows of data, and you'll be able to do something reasonably okay. A million rows will be better. If you want to do something with deep learning, you're kind of starting with a million a million a million lines there. So um, I don't think people that are using this in production have the how do you have to say this? The, the, the will to put the resources necessary for a deep learning model just yet? And again, yeah, TensorFlow,
0: it's not it's going to be a relatively
1: small number
0: of organizations that are going to have the oomph to be able no, to no. have all the data in the first place and yeah, exactly. be able to dedicate the resources to actually do all the, the training as well
1: yeah yeah, yeah. Now, of course, with the transfer learning things coming up, it becomes easier because you, you could have a model that's trained by I don't know Amazon and then skew it for your own uh, use case. The mm-hmm. problem here yeah. is that particularly for recommendations, it actually depends on what your current customers are doing, and nobody else but you can train that model yeah so transfer learning in this context, I think is hard to do that again, I am not the master of all knowledge on this point at all (laughs) so if i'm wrong (laughs) about this please let me know i'd actually be very interested but uh, it's a nice article if you've been looking at uh, implementing uh, any kind of machine learning and you want to know a bit more about the rest of it except not just the machine learning itself but how to implement the whole the whole thing Mm -hmm. they should give you a kind of a nice idea on at least what components are necessary it's not really the basic level you need to actually implement this, because uh, it's easy to say you need a Kafka stream. Okay, how to do that? There's still a lot more uh, around that, but it's, uh, it's oh, a yeah, good start. Oh, yeah, yeah,
0: it's it's, it's it's detailed enough that if you know already what you're doing in this sort of space, you'll find it quite easy to follow. Yeah. It's not detailed enough that you could just go, I know nothing, tell me all about building a recommendation engine from scratch. Yeah.
1: Uh, that's actually where the... And deploying it and running it. Uh, well, not even the model, but just the infrastructure, right? Because it's basically an yeah, yeah, infrastructure yeah. thing. And that's, I yep. think, what they what this Orix uh, project is trying to do. Apparently, I li- took a quick look at the GitHub uh, repository. If you download mm-hmm. and install that, you will get kind of a reference architecture up and running, uh, based on the Cloudera uh, distribution, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a quick and easy way to start the... Advantage is it's quick and easy i mean a little investment and i have something that probably works okay i guess disadvantage if you take something uh cookie cutter like this is it really going to do exactly what you want you probably need to skew it, uh tune it a little bit to your preferences and if then you don't yeah. really understand what's happening behind the scene that makes it harder again Yeah. so i see this for, for me personally i like this because it's a very easy way to do a demo <laughs> yeah 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 makes sense uh, but in production, it's always a little bit harder, right? Yeah. But again, good block from Clodera. and uh, people in the that want to know more about this, have a read. Links in the show Indeed. notes, as always.
0: So moving from recommendation engines to uh, testing performance. Um, earlier on uh, in the month, uh, in fact, not this month, last month, um, LinkedIn. Released uh, a project called, or open sourced a project called Dynamometer, um, which is a project that's designed to stress test uh, large scale uh, Hadoop clusters mm. uh, without having to use a massive amount of uh, infrastructure. Um, now we've we've talked about um, you know doing testing, and I think this is just. This could be just one more element of um, sort of testing that you could introduce into your infrastructure as part of your um, as part of your testing of you know maybe new builds if you're standing up um, a new cluster or if you're standing up sort of you know new OS base or something like that or deploying a, a new version of your distro of choice uh, this could be the sort of thing that you would be one of a battery of tests that you would run in the background. Um, the background behind it seems to be um, very much uh, LinkedIn had an experience back in uh, 2015 where they added uh, 500 machines to an existing uh, environment, where and obviously you know expecting to see a significant improvement in performance, and instead they started to see uh, uh, scale out problems and mm. uh, jobs uh, yeah, yeah. timing out and things like that. Um, and really, they just wanted to make sure they could um, run some testing at scale without actually having to spin up entire clusters. So it's it's a bit more it's about more about kind of testing the uh, the name node side of things than anything else. Is it
1: more of a simulation then on the real test?
0: Yes. So there's there's actually uh, three main sort of components. There's a um, there's the infrastructure itself, which is like a Yarn application. Um, there's a, a workload which is sort of a, a map produced job, uh, which actually replays back the the audit logs, and then there's a, a, a sort of a block generator that actually is used to generate the input files, um, and that's pretty much it. So it's um, it's just a relatively simple at the moment um, project. We'll put the link up to the. Uh, uh, github project and uh, the release notes and that sort of thing up on the uh, show notes but you know I think could be something useful to add into um, you know uh, standing up a new cluster part of a suite of tests that you run
1: yeah but correct me if I'm wrong but uh, the the, the the normal way of testing ACFS these days is the Terrasort uh, benchmark, I guess.
0: Yeah, but that, the, the complaint to... seems to be with that, that it doesn't put enough um, load on the uh, name node. Um, it, it's okay for something just to generate some basic numbers, but it might not stress test the environment
1: as as much as you would want. Yeah, because this should allow it to be more... I don't know, fit for whatever you're doing. Well, that resort is just the yeah. Resort, right? yeah. How many people yeah. sort there? <laughs> indeed, indeed. So I think it's it's
0: just a it's a cool little project. Um, if you're you know thinking about your uh, your cluster and scaling and what it might look like in the future, and you know you're considering. Things of this sort of scale, it might just be a
1: useful thing to introduce yeah. into, it's, your, uh, it's into your welcome. testing. Uh, I, I always found there's a, there's uh, not many testing tools or simulation tools out there for your cluster, and Hadoop clusters aren't easy to just put together. Yeah, it's easy to put a couple of cl- nodes together, but having any kind of prediction on what you'll need, and basically for in my business, I'm an, uh, an architect. Uh, people ask me, okay, I want to get ten seconds response time. How many nodes do I need? <laughs> <laughs> uh, enough. Yeah.
0: yeah, plenty. Lots. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so uh, the only way that I do it now is just yeah, start with ten and see if it if it's too much or not enough, and add or subtract. Basically, I mean that's yeah. that's the benefit of
0: of cloud. Right? Is that yeah, yeah. if Obviously. if you deploy a certain number and it's not enough, then you
1: deploy more until yeah. you yeah. get enough. But still, if you want to do budgeting uh, predictions, then yeah. uh, <laughs> you do get into problems. So having tools like this, uh, even if they're not perfect, just having some kind of uh, yeah, inf- more information is always good, right? Yeah, absolutely. Let's, uh, let's hope that this uh, keeps growing because it's indeed this started already a couple of years ago, right?
0: it's been around for a while um i mean obviously they they had a problem back in 2015 so you can imagine that they probably cut some code back then sometime but it's only only recently been open sourced nice indeed come on give us give us some funky visualizations <laughs> i got
1: blobs for you lots and nice. lots of nice dancing blobs. blobs flying blobs yeah, I want to talk about the visualization, which is, of course, always a great thing to talk about in a podcast. <laughs> See how it, it <laughs> always looks makes like. for
0: great radio. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so please, if you're not in, the, in a car at the moment, go to the show notes and click on the link. Yeah, it'll make a lot more sense uh, when you listen to us here. But uh, I'm not going to talk too much about the article itself. It's actually on flowingdata.com, and it's written by Nathan Yao. Oh, yeah, that's I think that's how it's pronounced. And he basically has built a graph showing how, in this case, Americans spend their day. And you have to visualize this as a kind of a clock with every number on the clock being a position in your life where it can be, in this case, sports, leisure, shopping, work, housework, education, sleeping, personal care, things like that. And then you just go through a whole day, minute by minute, second by second. You have a couple of uh, options here to go slow, medium, fast. And you just can see how the percentage of people move from in the morning sleeping state into traveling into work into sports leisure whatever and it's just a very very nice way of looking at data i mean there's a lot of data behind this and yeah. just it's always a, a struggle for me at least to to visualize data in a way that it's compelling tells the story you know how you talk to the business persons uh, person you yeah. want to actually give the insights and this was just—I noticed this on Twitter, and clicked through it, and I just spent, uh, I think, over five minutes just looking at the pretty balls. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it, yeah, it does. It does. It, it's very. Uh, it's almost therapeutic, <laughs> just watching the uh, the sort of the coloured balls kind of dash and dance around the the uh, visualization. But it it does, it does kind of make you think about how often have you seen some poorly formulated I don't know bar chart or pie chart or you know some god awful presentation and where with with multiple axes where you're just thinking I have no idea what that shows um, it, it's yeah it's particularly good use of, of animated
1: visualisation yep that link's going to be in the show note of course uh, at the bottom of the article there's a couple of extra links uh, where there's actually a link towards uh, a article from the same person how to build these blobs and fortunately that's behind a at least a join us uh, wall maybe even a paywall I haven't really checked it but um, yeah it's, uh, it's a nice visual I enjoyed it there's some more just the line charts below it which gives you yeah, a bit more static information let's say which I find a lot less compelling yeah yeah <laughs> Definitely.
0: And it, it does It does also remind me of um, there's a, a time-lapse video. Uh, it's quite an old one now, and I think they have done more recent ones. Uh, but there's a, a sort of a, a social lending platform called Kiva, and they actually produced a time-lapse video uh, that's, that shows uh, seven years of, of their lending platform from 2005 to 2011, and the the title of the video and we'll put a link in the show notes is intercontinental ballistic microfinance <laughs> and which is a great name but it they, they call it that because the the act of um, you know loaning money is is eventually sort of represented by a pixel flying across a map so it does look a little bit like people swapping missile launches in war games um, but uh, obviously then so you've got the uh, the loan going out in one direction and then getting paid back in another direction it starts off all very very slow and you know just a few things bouncing here or there but then you know it, it very quickly explodes into sort of just a complete mass of flying pixels across the lap but it's really it's a really good video they have done later ones uh, as well. I might see if I can dig up some of those as well, but we'll put a link to the the original one in the show notes.
1: Yeah, it really starts slow, and then 2006, at the end of uh, 2006, it kind of go yeah. bam! <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, it really hits mainstream and just erupts from that point onwards. But no, yeah. again, really nice, compelling use of, of visualization. It's something that we, we see a lot of people talking about the data um, and very. There's a lot less effort that seems to be
1: put into how to present that data. Well, I think maybe not just that. I mean, there's a lot of effort put in there, but it's just a lot of people that don't really know how to do it. And it's a hard yeah. thing
0: to do. It is, it is, it is. Okay. All right. So, so let's um, let's switch gears into please 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 stop doing it. Um, so this is just a, a quick article uh, which is uh, seven transport IoT predictions from Cisco, uh, and actually so this is on uh, network network world um, and. I'm not going to talk through all the predictions, uh, and the reason I'm not going to talk through them is because they start, in fact, it's uh, Kyle Connor uh, starts with data will be the new oil. It will uh, be? I've, apparently so. <laughs> I've heard this trotted out again and again and again and again, and I'm just, please stop. Please, please stop saying Data is the new oil, or will be the new oil. Uh, it's such a tired old trope at this point. Uh, just come up with something new. Yeah. Um, and and fossil don't... fuel is bad. Well, <laughs> but then people, you know, data is the new bacon and other amusing ones. No, it's and an there's... elephant, it's not a pig. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, just yeah, just just yeah. stop. Think of something more interesting to say than data is
1: the new oil. Yeah, I mean, there's been a bit of a resurgence of old articles, I find. People are trying to show, people, companies are trying to show that they're into the know by just repeating old truths, old memes. Mm-hmm. This is data, this is analytics, creativity. page. Yeah.
0: And it's a shame, actually, because there are some useful things in the predictions, but really, he ruins it, so I'm not going to talk yeah. about them. Sorry. Yeah, if
1: I'm looking through it, I don't really see anything that I haven't read at least ten times somewhere else. Yeah. So uh, we will not be tweeting about this. We will put it totally <laughs> in the show notes, because they've talked about it, and I have to. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. Moving on. Yeah. On a more positive note, perhaps I have a very short article I want to just mention here. It's on the forecast.com uh, blog, which I didn't mm-hmm. know before. Again, it's one I found via Twitter. For some reason, I decided to use Twitter this uh, episode to get my inspiration from. Usually I've been using the uh, Hadoop weekly, now data engineering weekly, a lot for that as well. And just doing web searches. But uh, this time I thought, oh, well, let's use Twitter and do a hashtag big data analytics search. Uh, Comes up with a lot of stuff, and one of the things I found was this pretty nice galaxy of artificial intelligence, machine learning, and uh, predictive analytics uh, Mm -hmm. differentiation, if I can say it like that. I'm not going to talk too much about the article itself because the article is very short, but I do like the visualization where they kind of show you how, in this case, predictive analytics is a part of machine learning, which is a part of the artificial intelligence universe with a lot of um, name dropping, let's say, across the whole thing. And I do remember from my last uh, contribution to the last, uh, roaring news episode, I also was talking about visualization that gave you kind of positioning information on which you use when, where. This is again a different way of uh, positioning all of these things like, uh, base learning, k means clustering. If you're talking about machine learning, RNNs, CNNs, if you're talking about, uh, artificial intelligence stuff. So it's, uh, I, I kind of like it because I'm mean, a bit of a sci-fi buff anyway. So anything with space works. <laughs>
0: Is it is it also um, laid out in such a way that yeah, things that are in the solar system are, sh- are things that should be very quick and easy to do? Things that are in the galaxy are things that may take more effort and things that are out in the universe are more cutting edge?
1: Um, yes and no. Could- yeah, uh, I, I
0: didn't say, think yeah. it, I was expecting to see it more laid out that uh, no. like that. But some of the stuff that's it's more the further space, out looks say. more.
1: I mean, yeah. I've, we've talked before already that uh, machine learning is the uh, continuation of pure statistics, let's say. While artificial intelligence, you might see as a continuation of machine learning, but that's not true because those are really two completely different ways of looking at the same <laughs> yeah. problem. Yeah. If you're looking at the tooling, though, you're right because if you look at the tooling, things like uh, Predicting Predictive analytics, that could just be statistics, although they already put neural networks in there as well. So no, I wouldn't look at that that way. It's more of a yeah. name dropping of, if you're talking machine learning, these are the things you're talking about. If you talk about artificial intelligence, this is what you're talking about. And yes, normally people will see machine learning as at least part of artificial intelligence, but I've also seen articles now that talk about uh, machine learning and then talk about uh, convoluted neural networks. So it's it's a gray area. Yeah, uh, everybody his own little uh, yeah identification, his own definition of that axiom. I would even say. But uh, again, I love the, I like the the, the visualization. So I want to space like the final frontier. Uh, well, apparently that's artificial intelligence, <laughs> and beyond that there is nothing except the board, of course. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> and uh, well, that I think is it. Until unless you have something else to add. I think we're done. We're done. We've done our half an hour of news for the people. If you enjoyed it, let us know. But this is all the time we have for today. We do hope you enjoyed this serving of bite-sized big data. We will be back in the next week with a new episode. That'll be the continuation of our Trifodian, um interview. If you like the yep. first part, the second part, part will go much going more depth. into a bit more depth. here. Yeah. But until then, please go to www.roaringalfin.org where you can find more information, including a feedback form. You can also follow us on Twitter using the at Hadoopcast tag, and you can contact us by email to podcast at Send us any thoughts, comments, criticisms, and other feedback. Also, the winner of our free ticket, please contact us as soon as you can so you can collect your prize. Until next time, my name is John, And my name is Dave. And we look forward to talking to you next week. Bye. See you then.